stole my joke. Well, you didn't make it. Come well, on, man. Pick like up your cues. I felt like it was wrong to reuse the joke. Daniel, what are we doing here? Yeah. What is this dance we do every week? Yeah. This I'm, is ridiculous. I'm just a real, like, I'm, I'm like one of those, like, very prima donna-ish performances that's, that's all about spontaneity. Why are we working together then? <laughs> well, exactly. You need that, the dynamic. Well, I will happily take the scraps of whatever jokes you fucked up the first time. I will pass them Get as well. up. Uh, you're the one who didn't press record. Oh, right. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf, and hello, governor, over here is Daniel. Uh, howdy, partner. Partner. Uh, is Abby. <laughs> you might notice that we have a new sound. We finally upgraded our swiftly deteriorating microphones. Uh, hopefully this pleases all the audio files out there who are like, you guys sound shit. All these people have us on vinyl. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so we're also back to our normal episode style after the Time Before Us two-parter Canterbury Tales episodes. Uh, so it's also just the two of us again this week. No Justine this time. She's exhausted after leading the Pedants Revolt. So mm, very good. that's my prefab yeah. on Justine. This is also a note to remind you that Aston University, where Daniel and I work, is starting up an MA English program, which is particularly useful for teachers of English. So if you are a teacher in the Midlands area and you would like Daniel and I to teach you, then please do apply for our Master's in English program. We also have, we've gotten a lot of letters and recommendations into our email and on Twitter. We're only going to read maybe one or two of these per episode. So if you have written in, don't worry, hang tight. We will get to you eventually. It might just be several episodes down the line. Would you like to read some of these letters, yeah, Daniel? Yeah, I will. We've got one from another repeat offender. <laughs> Aisha. Hi, Abby and Daniel. I hope you both well. Now... I'm just going to already <laughs> diverge from the letter. After that, Inspector Calls ones, we're getting a few pushbacks now, aren't we? Which I think is good. Yes, yeah, no, we, we actually do like it when people engage with us on text. If you think we've missed something or got something wrong, write us in nicely. Yeah, well, this is one of those pushbacks. I've listened to your latest episode, which is what was... Uh, Turn of the, the screw. <laughs> Thank you for covering this text. I teach it at A-level and we'll be setting it for students to listen to. Now, here comes the... The rebuke. I would add that the empire and imperialism is also a spectre that haunts this text and much of gothic 19th century literature in general. And was surprised that the death of the children's parents in India and Bly Manor being built on imperial wealth wasn't unpacked more, or indeed at, at all. all. Yeah. This was something I covered in a post-colonial reading with my students. Thanks as ever for the continuing helpful content. Best wishes, Aisha. I think this is actually a really important email because, first of all, Aisha, you're absolutely right that that's a huge element of the text, and we didn't end up covering it in the episode. And th I thought this might be a good time to sort of maybe let our listeners know how we make episodes. So Daniel and I did actually 
talk a bit about empire. Daniel talked about the Sea of Azov and things that that's referenced in the book. So oh, yeah, we the did, Crimean War stuff. So we d- we did talk a little bit about it. Even though these episodes are only an hour long, we actually record for probably what three to four hours and then condense everything. So not everything makes it into every episode. And our sort of rule of thumb is if we can't say something that's either funny or in a, a way that's really pithy and analytical, it tends to end up on the editing room floor. It's just sort of the, the best of version. <laughs> You'd think these episodes, uh, how much yeah. worse can they exactly, get? Yeah. So there is a lot that we do cover in recording and then just doesn't ultimately make it in. But also there's a lot of stuff that we miss. And I think that's that's really important to acknowledge that our episodes are not the definitive guide. Oh no. Just because we didn't <laughs> address something. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We're only only two readers and there are thousands of potential readings yeah. for any particular text. Empire's and always there, isn't it? Aisha, I hope that today's episode with its overt empire discourse makes up for that slightly. And we're going to we're going to review one other email because I think it's burning a bit of a hole in our pockets here so to speak. Dear podcasts, not sure if that's podcasters you were meant to say. Which is podcast? I am writing to correct Daniel's typically slapdash approach to the physical <laughs> sciences. <laughs> You, you have our attention, sir. In the Inspector Calls episode, Daniel claimed that the light of stars had gone out long ago due to relativity. In reality, it's simply due to the finite speed of light, meaning that there can be a significant delay in the arrival time of light due to the vast intergalactic distances involved. Uh. Although the constancy of the vacuum speed of light, regardless of the speed of the emitting object, is one of the two foundational postulates that Einstein used to formulate the special theory of relativity, it is not relevant to the phenomenon at hand. No, so it's close. <laughs> Secondly, Daniel claimed that relativity came out in 1912. Alas, no. Einstein published his special theory of relativity in 1905 and the general theory of relativity in 1915. My best regards, Jonathan. So, um, Daniel does tell me that he knows you in real life. Yeah, I, let me just say that I used to live with this person. Uh, okay. And, uh, he hasn't changed. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> And I do want to say that, first of all, sir, you are lucky Daniel told me you're his friend because I was about to go off on one about how no one can be mean to Daniel but me. Anyone else who tries to be mean to Daniel, I'm going to spike you like an American football, and then I'm going to spike Daniel too, because I'm going to do it anyway. Secondly, look, we we do always value correction, but you should note that we on this podcast, we simply don't care for science. If rays of light would like to refract or travel or get different, that is just none of our business. Uh, No, yeah, you're right. So Daniel, what is our text today? Don't shuffle that shit. We got good mics now. God damn it. I need to... How long is that thing? It's not that long. Okay. So, Daniel, what is our text today? We've passed through an age in which villain origin stories have been very popular. Maleficent, the bad fairy from Cinderella. Nope. Sleeping Beauty. Cool. <laughs> Maleficent, the bad fairy from Sleeping Beauty, got our own film in 2014. So did would-be dog slaughterer Cruella Deville in 2021. Those Dalmatians killed her mother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we learned that. Uh, Nurse Ratched also from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She got her own TV show. Don't know if people remember that. All of these narratives, they, they sort of offer a kind of revisionist, humanizing perspective on characters who are otherwise one-dimensional and, it should be added, misogynist archetypes. Now, there may be some cynics out there 
who consider these villain origin narratives to be lazy attempts on the part of film and TV to re-monetize pre-existing intellectual property while piggybacking on a movement that repudiates the sexism that these same industries help to propagate. While I have to say to you cynics, it's time for a revisionist understanding of the villain origin story. We need an origin story for the villain origin story. <laughs> and I think we might find it by reading today's text. Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea, written in 1966. Can I immediately shoot this down? Go on. You're forgetting about Paradise Lost. Nah, this is fine. Because <laughs> it's also the feminist part. Okay. So it goes without saying that we are going to spoil this text for you. Just a heads up about what we're going to be talking about. There's a lot of gaslighting, rape and sexual abuse, racism, imperialism, arson, ableism, uh, slavery. Would you like to do some background, please? Boy, would I. Would I? Jean Reese, born eighteen ninety, was a novelist from Dominica. Reese's family were both British and Creole, so kind of long-term white islanders. And she was, unsurprisingly, therefore, perhaps from a fairly genteel background. So her family had a plantation and she went to boarding school in England. She had a kind of bohemian life in Europe. She tried to become an actress but didn't succeed. And in the sort of 20s and 30s, she was all, you know, having all these affairs and marriages and was... The 20s sound great for that. Just everyone fucking everyone else. Well, like, exactly, yeah. It's just like part of the course, isn't it? It's not like she... It's hardly bohemian, is it? It's pretty conventional, I would say. <laughs> um, she started a literary career after becoming the protege and lover of the British modernist novelist Ford Maddox Ford. And I'm just going to say my Ford Maddox Ford factoid that he described himself as a great orc, which is, of all the flightless birds, is the least sexy, I think. So... Over these years, the 20s and 30s, Reese made a name for herself as an author. She wrote Quartet, which is based on the affair of Ford. Uh, there's a film of it, isn't there? She wrote Good Morning Midnight, which is a sort of fragmentary stream of consciousness work. Yeah, a modernist fragmentary stream of consciousness work. Who, who <laughs> thought of it? After this first phase, Reese became a kind of recluse. She lived in Devon and Cornwall. Or, so, do you have any jokes that you want to make here? No, nah, not really. Devon and Cornwall? Know, isn't yeah. that a little... Well, you know, pick a side, bitch. Exactly, yeah, you're, you're right, yeah. But then this, this text is all about ambiguous placings, isn't it? So, oh, okay, yeah. so that, that would make sense, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the, the Cornish Devonian deconstruction literary tradition. She ultimately wrote uh, Wide Sargasso Sea, which was published in 1966 and had a bit of a kind of career renaissance, but then died in 1979. So Reese's early works were very strongly influenced by modernism. As we'll see, Wide Sargasso Sea also employs a lot of modernistic devices, so omission, multiple perspectives, defamiliarization. A, a lot of people say that this is sort of the last modernist novel exactly, written yeah. way after this period ended. Yeah. It's a prequel to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, which we've also covered in this podcast, and is therefore, it's also kind of, you know, playing on ideas of intertextuality and revisionism. It's kind of, which these are all kind of classic postmodern themes, aren't they? So we've already done one of these, these, these kind of, these bridge texts between periods with Lolita, haven't we? Which also is a kind of modernist, postmodernist sort of halfway house. So the novel is about Mr. Rochester and his marriage to his first wife, Bertha Mason, as we'll find out. She was like, you know, a monster in Jane Eyre. White Sargassi, like its predecessor, is a feminist novel, but I think you would agree very yeah, in a very different way to Jane Eyre, which we will probably explore down the line. It's also a post-colonial text, as I was alluding to earlier. So it's about imperialism, the world economy, all of that, you know, brought into focus. And it explores themes like slavery and race and, you know, unequal cultural and economic relationships. And also, you know, it deconstructs the perspective of, you know, core and periphery. 
with England as this exotic sort yeah, of exactly, locale. Yeah, yeah. The, the Caribbean is the the, the main, norm, the, the norm, and you know the metropole, England and Europe are the are the exotic thing. Yeah, so I would really advise, just for for context, if you haven't gone and listened to our Jane Eyre episode, which is, I believe, episode 15, I would really advise that you go and listen to that one first, because this one is constantly, it's a rewriting of Jane Eyre or a prequel to it. Part one, we open on a famous opening line, quote, they say when trouble comes, close ranks, and so the white people did, but we were not in their ranks. So, yeah, already we've got these kind of themes of folk knowledge, history, race, exclusion, hierarchy, you know. We're in post-colonial country. Yeah. Yep. So it's the 1830s, and things are not going so great for the family of our narrator, Antoinette. She opens talking about her mother, who was a woman from Martinique, so she never quite fit in with the ladies of Jamaican society, and that's where the text is set in Jamaica. And Antoinette's father died, leaving her mother this young, hot widow. She's she's this sort of stupid, beautiful woman who was once really wealthy, but now is like fallen into sort of poverty. So she's she kind of got the aura of a dying mall. <laughs> The biggest issue is that the Emancipation Act of 1833 freed all of their slaves, but the government failed to recompense them. So now the family, the Causeways, that's their last name, they live this crappy life in this rundown house. And look, I hesitate to sound like an infomercial, but just their whole way of life, there's just got to be a better way. Mm-hmm. And the worst of these indignities, our narrator tells us, is that black people now laugh at them in the street and my prefab here is well you should expect to get laughed at if you're a fucking clown yeah unfortunately our narrator antoinette her mother is still young and hot and she doesn't understand why someone so young and so hot should have to suffer same really yes uh me too now we're marooned uh, she, she says doesn't she the mother which i thought was interesting because that's the maroons were the the, the freedom you know, seeking slaves, weren't they? You know, that escaped into the jungle. And it's it's evoking not only sort of marooned, like marooned on an island, but also octoroon, quadroon. You're both de- deserted, and also it's about black freedom. But regardless, marooned. I'm like, calm down, Robinson Crusoe. You're white, and you have nice tits. You'll be fine. Things get worse when Antoinette's baby brother Pierre struggles to walk and talk. Their mother has a doctor come. He gives a sort of disability diagnosis, you know, one of those kind of very broad, sweet ones they had back then. And the mother is never quite the same after that. She just spends all day walking up and down the veranda, because there's always a veranda, isn't there, in these sorts of things, (laughs) while Antoinette runs wild in the garden and hangs out with her black nurse, Christophine, who was her mother's wedding present. wedding registry so i would like a set of fine china a blender a new bath mat and one human soul yeah christophine she never left after she was freed and the mother says that they would have died if she had but then again maybe it would have been better if they'd all died maybe this is christophine's last revenge who knows (laughs) well the mother says that she says like it'd be better if she had left and we'd all just died yeah so i put a lot of quotes in here i probably won't read all of them but i think this is a good one just to get a sense of the style our garden was large and beautiful as that garden in the bible there's lots of bible imagery in this by the way this is just the first the tree of life grew there but it had gone wild the paths were overgrown and a smell of dead flowers mixed with the fresh living smell underneath the tree ferns tall as a as forest tree ferns the light was green orchids flourished out of reach or for some reason not to be touched 
One was snaky looking, another like an octopus with long, thin, brown tentacles, bare of leaves, hanging from a twisted root. Twice a year, the octopus orchid flowered. Then not an inch of tentacles showed. The scent was very sweet and strong. I never went near it. All the Culibri estate, that's where they live, isn't it, had gone wild like the garden, gone to bush. No more slavery. Why should anybody work? This never saddened me. Did not remember the place when it was prosperous. So obviously there's loads going on there about like life and death and everything kind of all intertwangling. Intertwangling. <laughs> uh, also I was thinking, oh kids, that's balls, isn't it? That's like literally, I don't want to keep going back to, no, to it, testicles, but... I you mean, know. you're preoccupied, but follow your bliss, my dude. <laughs> but that idea of the balls is something that you can't touch or something threatening or whatever forbidden about. The, but, finally, the bloke's the forbidden fruit. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, that, that idea as well, the sort of the fecundity of this place. I mean, that, that, I think that wonderful bit, the dead flowers mixing with the mm. fresh living smell and the light was green. Yeah, there's and, loads of that weird color I mean, imagery. I gotta be honest, I think this bitch is just trying to sell us a timeshare and yeah. I'm tempted. I was, the, the next thing I was gonna say is, is it, it's kind of like Southern Gothic, isn't it? But obviously, I mean, you could kind of call the South an extension of the Caribbean or vice versa, maybe, but... I mean, New Orleans is the obvious crossing yeah. point. There were places in Florida. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I got a real like, Shirley Jackson vibe from this, but if Shirley Jackson maybe was gargling with racist marbles a little bit. The lottery. Is that Shirley Jackson? Yes. Okay. And and many, many other works. Okay. But it's hard for this to not be a gothic text considering Jane Eyre is an yeah. incredibly oh, gothic well, text. So right. one day Antoinette is followed by a young black girl who calls Antoinette a quote white cockroach. And she says that no one wants their family around there, which depresses Antoinette. I'm sorry you're no longer invited to the party when you don't own all the guests. I mean, look, I know narratively our sympathies are supposed to be with Antoinette in this book, but to be honest, all the black people she encounters are kind of well within their rights to light her candy ass up. But Antoinette soon makes a friend, and that's another young black girl named Tia, who she plays with. And all goes really well between them until they decide to go swimming one day. And they make a bet, as kids do, because I think I've made this exact same bet in my childhood, on if Antoinette can do a somersault underwater. Antoinette does, but Tia says, no, she didn't. And then when Antoinette's in the pool, Tia steals the money that they bet, and she steals Antoinette's dress that she took off when they went swimming, leaving Antoinette with Tia's old rag to wear. So she has to go home in that, where, horror of horrors, her mother has all these important guests waiting. Uh, and this is, like, whatever the opposite of a glow-up is. I don't know slang. But but that, the opposite of that. Dim down. And Christophine hates all of these new people that Antoinette's mother has started getting really buddy-buddy with because they're English colonizers and they use their deeply unfair laws to keep slavery going in spirit, if not necessarily in name. No more slavery. She had to laugh. These new ones have letter of the law, same thing. They got magistrate, they got fined, they got jailhouse and chain gang, they got tread machine to mash up people's feet. New ones worse than the old ones. More cunning, that's all. Also, yeah, colonizer, I thought that seemed like a slightly odd way of putting it, but I mean, you're obviously right, but I, it feels a bit different because like the Creoles and the Africans have already colonized the Caribbean in the sort of tall intents and purposes. The, these are like sort of like profiteers, aren't they? They're like coming to like cap capitalize on them. But surely there are there are so many different ways to colonize. Of course, yeah, no, you could, what they're doing is colonialism, but I feel it seems weird to call them colonizers because I imagine like people in black hats and kind of homesteading and stuff and they're not doing that, are they? They're just buying up land and, you know, it's more of a kind of... Man, tomato, tomato. Well... Tobago, Tobago. 
No, no. I mean, you're right that the power thing is the same, but it's also clearly not the same because we've got Antoinette here too in the middle. The squeezed middle, poor Lord love them. <laughs> but I, I think, well, but that's an interesting point is that no, yeah, we're, in, is, yeah. we're in a different phase of colonialism. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. That's true. Yeah, this is, Antoinette represents the old order and then these lot of the kind of new yeah. capitalistic types. There's also, I like all this kind of ambiguous stuff about, Antoinette says, says a lot of stuff about like real white people versus poor whites. So she kind of mm-hmm. contrasts herself to that, which that's a kind of key dynamic in mm-hmm. the Caribbean, isn't it? I think that, or at least in this period where you have like, I was, I was just thinking the example from Haiti or before Haiti mm-hmm. got independent with the, the Grand Blanc, the Petit Blanc, the Jean de Couleur and the Negre. So you've just got all these kind of crazy categories that are all like, you know, it's the, it's the confusion therein that's meant to create these power relations or make them more ambiguous in a way that benefits yeah. the, the, the whites, the, the rich whites. Well, yeah, and I, I think that's an important distinction is that the idea of whiteness over time has not always meant the same mm. thing. So now we view, like, do you walk through the world as a person with white skin? But in, in previous times, Italian people, especially Irish people, mm. Slavic people, they were not considered white. And like Creoles here. Creoles yeah. are white on the island, but they're not white to British people. Yeah, just, so that's, it's, I suppose that is interesting. Antoinette's mother takes up with these people, these, you know, colonists, and starts, you know, going out to parties with them, leaving her kids alone. I'm sorry, but there is no way they are not dropping keys in a bowl at these parties. Yep. And soon enough, her mother marries someone called Mr. Mason. Mm, Um, New daddy just dropped. Young Antoinette, we learn that her mother is also named Antoinette, overhears people gossiping. Why would this rich colonizer, who, who could have his pick of any heiress in Jamaica or even England, pick a widow with no money, one child, Pierre, who's an, quote, idiot, and another, Antoinette, who's so angry and isolated that she's probably going the same way. Well, they conclude, this widow, I suppose she is a babe. So, you know, (laughs) that's all right then, I suppose. So let's all remember that a lot of the kind of ableism that surrounded um, Bertha Mason and Jane Eyre was also tied up with racial and sexual stuff. So that's, you know, Reese is playing with that same theme, isn't she, here? Yeah, and I mean, just just to avoid confusion, it's going to be made apparent later, but Bertha Mason in Jane Eyre is Antoinette Causeway <gasps> in this book. It's it's young Antoinette, our narrator. So ju- just in case you're like, wait, I thought her name was Antoinette. Why are we calling her Bertha? What's going on? That's yep. what's happening here. So Mr. Mason, the new stepfather, he's a nice enough guy, but he just doesn't quite get white Caribbean people. And he even makes them eat boring English food. Beef and mutton, pies and puddings. Oh, imagine that in a, in a really hot... Well, it's bad enough when it's cold, but other than that. But that said, he, you know, he has money, he fixes up their home, he's really into his hot young wife, and things generally start to look up for the family. Antoinette, our young narrator, (laughs) takes to calling him White Pappy, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) And then after about a year, for whatever reason, I don't think it's ever really fully said, both Antoinette and her mother, they start getting really anxious. And they're like, you know what, I I think it's time to leave the estate. Can we please go someplace else? Antoinette even has a weird sort of vision about a rooster getting slaughtered. And I'm going to throw in a find the phallus here for no reason. Her mother wants to go anywhere else, even to visit Richard, Mr. Mason's son from his first marriage. And this is actually the guy who turns up in Jane Eyre when Bertha stabs his ass and bites him on the arm. Mr. Mason laughs it all off. And he's like, "There, nothing's gonna happen. You women folk are all being paranoid. You know, you've been living here for five years since the slaves were freed. Nothing bad has happened since. So why would we get attacked now? Quote, 
they're too damn lazy to be dangerous. Come on, you got to do James Mason. Yeah, they are too damn lazy to be dangerous. <laughs> it's just how they do. The mother, a noted white woman, is like, you just don't understand black people, James Mason. One day she wakes up Antoinette out of a sound sleep because the local black people, you know them, they've surrounded the house. Oh, somebody's about to get cancelled. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so Mr. Mason thinks it's just some drunken party that's got out of control and the worst he predicts is that they'll all have hangovers the next day. <laughs> so while the Mason family is all distracted, the mob sets fire to the house. Baby Pierre, little baby Pierre, he's asleep in the back. So the mother rushes in and rescues him, burning her hands badly in the process. But Pierre isn't responding. Is he alive or is he dead? Ooh, things get a little spicy. So the house goes up in flames. The mother wants to rush back in. like she, So she's saved Pierre. We don't know if he's alive or dead. She's like, oh my god, I have to save my caged parrot. And the caged parrot can only say, who is there in French? Qui est là? Is that a, a Rochester at the end of Jane Eyre illusion? Doesn't isn't the bit where he's blinded and Jane comes back and he's doesn't he, isn't he like who is there? I thought it was Adela. Oh, does it? Uh, well, and Adele, yeah, speaks French as well. Yeah, yeah. So okay, well, the blanket Jane Eyre maybe reading. Yeah, yeah, reading here. We're gonna put in a little klaxon for that. Yeah. Jane. But Mr. Mason restrains the mother from trying to save the parrot. And in this really horrible scene, the parrot somehow manages to escape its cage in the house and makes its way up onto the burning roof. I mean, maybe you might remember a similar scene in Jane Eyre with another metaphorical caged exotic bird up on a burning roof. Give me foreshadowing horn and the Jane Claxon. Ooh, that's messy. I like it. But the Englishman, Mr. Mason, had previously clipped the parrot's wings. So, oh, yeah, heavy-handed metaphor alert. Yeah, heavy wings. <laughs> so the parrot can't fly, and this poor flightless bird jumps off the roof to its death. Could be a great orc. Could be about <laughs> was, Ford Maddox Ford. I was, I was trying to remember. I was like, <laughs> shit, what was it? Well, it's not a cassowary. What was the thing you were saying? I couldn't remember it. So I'm sure that Mr. Mason is having an extremely Job Bluth, I've made a huge mistake moment right about now. So there's this really tense standoff down below where it looks like the whole Mason family is about to be murdered. And finally, the family is allowed to leave in a carriage. But before they do, Antoinette's friend Tia turns up in the crowd and she throws a jagged stone at Antoinette's head. Oh. Quote, I did not feel it either, only something wet running down my face. I looked at her, and I saw her face crumple up as she began to cry. We stared at each other, blood on my face, tears on hers. It was as if I saw myself, like looking in a glass. I don't quite know why, but I'm going to pull out a queer reading here oh, God. as fast as if it were like a standoff at a high noon. I was going to say, you queer reading from the hip, you do, don't you? You uh, don't love it? No, no you're going to be really pew, like... Pew, pew! No. First of all. Give me my queer reading. Yeah, okay. I'm owed. It's my due and my tithe, and <laughs> you've signed up for this. Yeah, I know. Secondly, why is it bad that I do queer reading from the hip? Why what? is that a bad thing? Like, I'm in a Western. Because shooting from the hip is not always accurate, is it? That's the point. That's what's wrong with shooting from the hip. And I'm I don't give a shit. Scatter. <laughs> okay. I, I will blast you right. with... with um... Just get a big blunderbuss and full it with queer pellets and just shoot yes. it at everyone. Yeah, That's okay. That's the dream. You've yeah. just described yeah. my ideal reading situation. Queer pellets. So, that's good. We cut to Antoinette walk, waking up 
their aunt's house after six weeks of fever. Poor baby Pierre is dead, and their mother is taking a rest cure. They had to give Antoinette a bad haircut because of the fever. The only cure for this is a bad haircut. <laughs> um, good news, however, the cut, cut on her forehead won't leave a scar. So she can just get over this whole event. That's how it works, isn't it? Yeah, Antoinette's like, hold on, just give me a moment to repress this. Mm, there we go. The aunt, that is aunt, is super optimistic that white supremacy will rule the day. I'm sorry, a white person said that? That just doesn't track. Antoinette's mother, she's had a proper mental breakdown, so Antoinette gets sent to a convent for her schooling. I mean, maybe they can teach her math or something. Or physics. Eh? <laughs> maybe this will be a sister act two back in the habit situation. Where I become a nun and learn physics. <laughs> Sister Act 2 is about when they take in, like, students to teach. Oh, okay, cool. It's not, it's, you're not, like, a Vegas or I'm Reno not singer. It's you're not, not about not, me. You're not involved at all. <laughs> it's not about me. I would love, I would, do you know how much money I would pay to see a remake of Sister Act with you in the Whoopi Goldberg part? I would, it's I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind, uh, doing her whole career. Her whole back catalog. All over. You'd be great in Ghost. Uh, yeah. Pretty weird in The Color Purple, I think, that we have... <laughs> Quite, quite a mistaken casting choice. Uh, even you wouldn't go that far in your uh, casting section. <laughs> so on her walk to the convent one day, Antoinette is followed by this mean black girl and this ugly, cruel black boy who Antoinette finds repulsive because while he's clearly black, he has white skin, freckles, and red hair. Uh? Yeah, Antoinette, I'd agree with you that evidence of years of colonialist rape is horrific. So this is just a really typical, like, childhood bullying thing. They talk about her mother's disability, her mental health. It's all very, yo mama so crazy, whenever she goes running, she takes the psychopath. And I would like to thank Erin from 8th grade for telling me that joke however many years ago. Yeah, that's quite a good one. So Antoinette is getting seriously mean-girled, and I kind of wonder if this is a little bit of a Jane Eyre reference when Jane is young and living with her horrible relatives, the Reeds, and like those ter- those terrible cousins like always tormenting her. And they talk about the cousins being like sort of popular girl types. But thankfully Antoinette here is rescued by another bigger black boy named Sandy, who is actually her cousin. But shh, she's not allowed to talk about that anymore because Mr. Mason, her stepfather, told her, English people don't acknowledge that they rape their enslaved people, and sometimes that produces children. It just isn't dignified. So, yeah. Second Jane Claxon, Sandy Asinjan. Jane! We've got the first Jane Claxon of the other kids being the Reeds. Now we've got the cus- the rescuing cousin is Sinjin. You it's know what? baby! I, <laughs> I tentatively buy that the rescuing cousin who maybe you kind of have a thing with will they won't they will they won't they Um, so Antoinette makes it to the convent and everything there is actually alright sorry that is not my experience of nuns Daniel I think I think you've been reading this book upside down again uh, so we're meant to compare this episode in the convent with Jane Eyre's time at Lowood Jane Claxon yes please Jane everything's hot instead of cold the religious officials are really nice and give the girls plenty to eat and even hairstyling advice which obviously old Mr. Brocklebank or whatever his name is Brocklehurst right Brocklebank is also a name isn't it I mean technically he did give hairstyling advice and that was to shave the students who he thought had hair that was too nice there we go there we go that's it Uh, they learn a lot of sort of self-indulgent vanity stuff like embroidering roses rather than Equally useless puritanical bullshit. So Catholicism wins again. Well, are they Catholic? I thought they were Anglican nuns. 
But still, as we've discussed... You guys have nuns? You better believe it. You've never seen Call the Midwife? What? No, I've never... No? Yeah, why would you have? Yeah, she's having a nice time at the convent, but at home, things aren't great. You having trouble at home? Yeah, there's nice teachers, aren't they, that say that. Her mother doesn't seem to be getting any better. Christophine has moved away to live with her son. Mr. Mason, you know, her, her white pappy, keeps <laughs> taking longer and longer business trips. And even Antoinette's aunt, who she's been living with, has decided to go back to England for her, her, her health. Who goes to England for the climate? I, in fact, I, I'm going to stop there. I went to England for the climate from Scotland. And I went to Scotland from Vermont. So fair enough. But if you're in the Caribbean, friend. But yeah, man, this family really uh, clocked out after their shift, didn't they? So Antoinette is actually having a great time uh, with the nuns. Said no one ever, apart from this book. Things are really stable. Maybe, uh, what's his face? Casanova. Different kind of good time. Although maybe not. Uh, yeah, that's queer reading this. Yep, we know what happens at convent school. We know what happens. So things are really stable. The people are kind there. Eventually, though, Mr. Mason talks about taking Antoinette out of the convent for reasons. And she's like, no, I'm good here. I want to stay hidden here my whole life. But... It's kind of clear that Mr. Mason has other plans for her, and, and that makes her really uneasy. So this is the point in the novel where her life could sort of go in two directions, right? But unfortunately, Mr. Mason really chooses the wrong direction. So everything that follows, including all of Jane Eyre, I think is actually kind of a back to the future to Biff Tannen timeline. <laughs> then we find out, horror of horrors, her mother has actually been dead for a full year, and we don't know how, and she was never informed. Mm, it's like Lolita as well. Mr. Mason and uh, Antoinette in a car. Um, <laughs> I, I, know you're, I know you're paraphrasing about how Antoinette had a good time at the convent, but it is a bit more ambiguous than that. But I think that this reflects more maybe on Antoinette's own weirdness. But I'll just read this quote. <laughs> Everything was brightness or dark. The walls, the blazing colours of the flowers in the garden, the nuns' habits were bright, but their veils, the crucifix hanging from their waists, the shadow of the trees were black. That was how it was, light and dark, sun and shadow, heaven and hell. For one of the nuns knew all about hell, and who does not? But another one knew about heaven and the attributes of the blessed. I could hardly wait for all this ecstasy, and once I prayed for a long time to be dead. <laughs> so, that's a really weird passage, isn't it? But I think, maybe, I don't know, however nice or not nice the convent is, I think we're also just getting an insight more into Antoinette's weird, <laughs> sort of, but, schizophrenic worldview. But this makes a lot of sense to me, in is she, she is somebody who is ambiguous in a world that exists in black and white, and is mm. she black, and is yeah. she white, and... We don't really know. And so, so she sees it everywhere, this sort of light and shadow. She talks about even like on the brightest day, the sky looked black. Mm. And that's that sort of like ambiguity to her is almost death or death would be easier. Yeah. Oh, well, and also like both post-colonialism and feminism are about binaries and how we can overcome them. I suppose in that sense, the style is reflecting those. Yeah. Yeah. Part two. And listener, we've switched narrators. He's never named, but this is Mr. Rochester. Ah. You know him. You love him. He likes people with pillory necks. Well, prepare not to love him. Quote, so it was all over, the advance and retreat, the doubts and hesitations, everything finished for better or for worse. There we were, sheltering from the heavy rain under a large mango tree, myself, my wife Antoinette, and a little half-caste servant hmm. who was called Amelie. So, yeah, just just remember Amelie from this opening scene because she's going to be important 
later. But the point is, is that Rochester here is, he's saying that he's just got married, doesn't he? Yeah, and he even says the words for better or for worse, and then there are three people in the scene, so let's just think about that. But also he's speaking in this very oblique way about the fact that the marriage has happened, and in a very sort of, like, RC yeah. sort of way, right? But, I mean, basically, part two opens up where the graduate ends, so everyone's in wedding clothes, and they're sort of staring into the middle distance, and Simon <laughs> like, and Garfunkel right, is playing. Yeah. This was years later. Antoinette has, you know, she's just married this dude. They're caught in a rainstorm on their honeymoon in, in a place called Massacre. Nice. Foreshadowing horn, maybe, I guess? Yeah, why not? And the, there's also a backshadowing. Backshadowing? God, what klaxon could be used for it that? It would be the same, but reversed. Can we just use... None. <laughs> So this male narrator, again, Mr. Rochester, but he is never named as such. Antoinette is ambiguously... We don't know her name for a while, do we? Yeah, but he's... I don't think he's ever named. But he's not exactly smitten with his new wife. Everything she does seems to piss him off, or at the very least make him kind of suspicious. She To (laughs) to the level that she doesn't even blink enough for his liking. He basically goes... Listen, I'm experiencing a negative emotion, and now I'm about to make it your problem. Mm-hmm. Also, let's have the bit here. I like the bit about Massacre. Rochester. And who was massacred here? Slaves? Oh, no. Antoinette sounded shocked. Not slaves. Something must have happened a long time ago. Nobody remembers now. So, you know, this. I don't know what's going on here. I feel like Antoinette could just be, like, whitewashing history in a very literal sense of the term and being like, oh, no, we would never do anything like that. But also there's that, just that kind of amnesia that we just had. Because the Caribbean is that sort of... You've got the, the English regime, then you've got the French regime, then you've got the Spanish, then you've got the, the Arawaks or whoever. You know, there's all these kind of successive things yeah. that people might have forgotten. It's like a palimpsest, you know what I mean? I, feel like I that's love what's going on. I love that term as a sort of literary term, palimpsestic or palimpsest, which is sort of when it, it originally meant when you're like people were writing manuscripts on vellum and you could sort of scrape it clean but occasionally you could see the words underneath that had been written before and you write over them but it's this idea of like things being built over things that are still kind of visible yeah and vestigial yeah Yeah. and that's a great literary term i think that's what's going on with massacre though now meanwhile in a Werner herzog movie rochester He's bitching about everything. <laughs> he is a bit like Werner Herzog, isn't he? I'll read, I'll read it like, like Herzog. Oh, please do, please do. Everything is too much. I felt as I rode virally after her. Too much blue. Too much purple. Too <laughs> much green. The flowers, too red. The mountains, too high. The hills, too near. And the woman is a stranger. Yeah, uh, my prefab here is a ruddy Englishman getting angrier and angrier. He's a steamed ham. <laughs> <laughs> As we suspected, or knew from Jane Eyre, their marriage has been arranged, and Antoinette has brought a dowry of, wait for it, £30,000. Uh, let's measure and worth that. Yes. We all love it. Do we? Yeah. Do we? Because there are some critics on Twitter. You just said yes. I mean, I love it. If you want to compare the value of £30,000 in 1840, that's what year I'm assuming it is, there are four choices. The real wage, that's inflation. We all love it, don't we? It's all having fun these days. £2,882,000. That's a lot of money, isn't it, already? And, you know, long-time listeners of the show will know we're still in the foothills of the Himalayas. The labor earnings of that income are well, so you know, kind of in relation to the average wage, 28,100,000 pounds. 
Golly. That's, yeah, thank you. Relative income value of that, £38,040,000. And finally, here's the big one. You know, you will love it. Everyone's always cheering for this one. The relative <laughs> output value of that income or wealth. It is, uh, and this is as a kind of, you know, in terms of the clout within the economy, equivalent to £128,300,000. This is a lot of money. Daniel, I love it when you do a measuring worth. You, there's something about you that goes kind of feral, like somebody has watered a gremlin after midnight. <laughs> I just, I don't know, it's like a it's like chance for me to, to really let loose. And listen, detractors, you need to celebrate this. Daniel doesn't let his hair down very often. Let him have this one. Yeah. As sad <laughs> and lame as it may be. I think it's a useful device. <laughs> Nonetheless, Rochester is having a hard time figuring out how he's supposed to feel about all of this. He's glad because he'll never be dependent on his father or older brother. He'll live well. His wife is beautiful. But has he sold his soul? Poor blokes. These poor blokes. Oh, poor, poor diddums. He's like, well, I was raised by a sentient pile of money. I suppose now I get to have sex with a sentient pile of money. So... Same diff. Yeah. Ooh, a kind of uh, Oedipal market reading. Interesting. <laughs> uh, get that. Get that. <laughs> the klaxoning for that. Thank you very much, Sigmund Freud. Well, just a bitch is a lot about colour, doesn't he? And then obviously Antoinette has this very kaleidoscopic sort of perspective. And so she's... Like, not not necessarily a person of colour, but she's kind of perceived as that by Rochester, and he's like, colour equals bad. And also she's not necessarily, like, pro the sort of weird colours that she describes either, but she's more kind of willing to engage, whereas Rochester's kind of like, there's too much colours. There's too many... Not just in a racial sense, but just in a kind of like, oh, it's all too vibrant. There's a part of me that slightly doesn't buy this, because in Jane Eyre, Rochester is constantly being described in Orientalist terms. He's mm. always being described... Yeah, it, East Indies, not the West Indies. Yeah, and so I don't know if this is something like he's matured in Jane Eyre, which might be a valid reading. This might be him in his sort of really shitty younger years where mm. he's like maybe come to terms with it later in Jane Eyre. But he's got a super, super post-colonial Orientalist reading in the original Bronte. And that's kind of intriguing given how much he... But isn't that the point, though, that he's been touched by it? He's been corrupted. Oh, I mean, yeah, that... So that, to speak. That, but Jane finds it really attractive. Yeah. So it's not... It's, like, corrupted, but in, not like, not a bad oh, way. Oh, yeah. We also find out that Mr. Mason Sr., Antoinette's stepfather, the white pappy, he's died. I know. And that leaves her stepbrother, Richard Mason, in charge. So we, we go into a flashback now of Rochester's courtship of Antoinette. And he remembers how hollowly he performed because, um, you know, he sort of had to. He had to, like, make the overtures to this young woman who he had to marry. And none of the white people who were in attendance doubted his performance. They're like, oh, what a wonderful young lover. Because white people's capacity for denial is endless. But he, he just knows in his heart that all of the black people who were sort of serving them they knew. They saw how unimpressed he was, how dead inside he was. So great. I look forward to seeing this dude fail upward for the rest of his life. That's the dream. The whole white people not doubting him and black people knowing. That's also like a fetishizing thing, isn't it? Saying like, oh, they've got they their see. wisdom. They see. You know, so that's kind of bollocks as well. I bet there's plenty yeah. of white people that knew that he was making an effort for starters. Well, anyway. Cut back to the honeymoon. That was a flashback. So 
He's had a bit of a culture shock, Rochester has, hasn't he? But things start going a bit better for him now they're there. He first realises how attractive his wife is. He rescues a moth from the house and they go for a walk, uh, romantic walk. Antoinette tells him a weird story about rats. <laughs> Always a sign of, you know, a, a budding romance. And they sing a little song. Uh, I can't remember what it's about. It's not about rats. <laughs> I mean, this is this is very like awkward first date vibes. I've been on worse. The moth thing. It's one of you know moths to a flame. Mm-hmm. That's like a fatal attraction type yeah. metaphor, isn't it? So I think there's a bit of that going on. And he's the pale one. He's not a butterfly to the flame, is he? He's the sort no, of grey. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Miserable English yeah, piss, moth. Yeah, pasty. Also, Christophine's back on the scene. Oh, good. Oh, thank God. So and Ro- and Rochester, he's intimidated by her. Who isn't? <laughs> I ask. <laughs> So the next day, you know, presumably like the day after their wedding night, it actually goes really well. They end up having a kind of sexy bath together in a big pool outside the house. They watch some animals. And Antoinette apparently throws rocks charmingly, like a boy. Is that a queer reading? I don't know. Maybe, Why not? Yeah. Sure. And she says her so- her cousin Sandy taught her how to do it. But she leaves out the fact that he's a black cousin. She, she conveniently, like, misses out that detail. The husband, Mr. Rochester, doesn't like how much she trusts her black servants, especially Christophine. So one of the reasons he doesn't really like his new wife, Antoinette, is that she's clearly gauche enough to fall in love with her <laughs> husband. In fairness, Antoinette is very intense, and she often talks about death late at night. Oh, God. She says, quote, If I could die now when I am happy... Would you do that? You wouldn't have to kill me. Say die and I will die. You don't believe me? Then try, try, say die and watch me die. And Rochester says, die then, die, and continues, I watched her die many times. Uh, la petite mort. <laughs> oh, 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 we're getting all sexy with it. Okay, all right. Apparently Rochester knows his way around a lady's pants. And they they decide to stay at this honeymoon house in Massacre, and they ambivalently fuck for weeks, and the whole thing is very Fifty Shades of White. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Then, one day, an urgent letter is delivered to Rochester by a local man named Daniel Cosway. Uh, That's my name, isn't it? Well, some of it. Oh, I bet he'll be a really nice guy, just like... Oh, don't say that. It says that the Antoinette family is loathed in the area for being disgusting slave owners. Fair. If Rochester cares about that. Well, I think he kind of does, doesn't he? I don't know. Um, I don't know that he really gives a shit. But he does differentiate himself from the Creoles, partly in the terms of slavery. Uh, I think he differentiates himself from them in racist terms. But also in hip- hypocritically anti-racist terms. Well, yeah, yeah. He's like, well, I'm not a slave owner. I was like, no, you're, you just think you haven't been tainted by blackness. Yeah, really. just benefited from it at home. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what, yeah, what are you, what are you, what are you sprinkling on your cornflakes, kid? Frank- uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, Cosway continues. There is madness in the family, so you better watch out, boy. The writer reveals that he's Antoinette's half brother. Her father presumably raped one of his slaves or had a relationship with a black woman nearby, and he was the result. And I like this bit because the letter's written in patois, so we get a bit of kind of, uh, you know, different dialects going on in the text, which is part of its appeal, I think. Yeah, it is. Although I do think this is one of the few occasions where the email should have been a meeting. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, Rochester, he's reading this letter, and to be honest, he isn't really that surprised. He he says, he kind of recounts us like he was expecting it, 
And this isn't helped when he sort of stumbles back into their bedroom and he hears Amelie, the servant, goading Antoinette. And Amelie's being really cruel to her. She's like, oh, your husband, he always comes out of his room looking like a zombie. Like, what do you do to sex the life out of him? (laughs) I bet he's already sick of you. And Antoinette slaps Amelie, who then calls her a white cockroach and slaps her back. Can't get the staff, can you? (laughs) So I'm thinking... Sack that woman. So then Amelie, the servant, starts flirting with Rochester and giving him all her bedroom eyes. And I'm just like, ugh, why? Would this count as getting lucky for either of them? And the prefab I have here is, if Amelie lived today, she would absolutely smell like an $8 body spray called something like Grape Tongue Kiss. She's a tramp. (laughs) (laughs) So... Rochester goes out for a melodramatic walk, we've all done them, haven't we, uh, in the rain, and he nearly gets lost, while lamenting how everyone clearly knows about his wife's madness, which he just kind of blindly accepts now he's read Daniel Cosby's letter. He thinks everyone's tricked him, that he's a laughing stock. Oh my god, Rochester, quit bugging out. He just decides to stop eating and start drinking heavily, this was a good idea, uh, while reading about zombies. I'm trying to figure out if he is one. Uh, no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. This is how Dateline episodes start. I'm, no thank you. I'm not having it. I was it. thinking more like late night Googling, like, am I a zombie? And then like, <laughs> WebMD is like, yes. <laughs> um, so now we switch back to Antoinette as a narrator. And it's, it's, I found this bit very confusing because oftentimes when they switch narrators, it's not entirely clear who is speaking. So sometimes you're like, wait, is this Rochester or is this Antoinette? So Antoinette goes to Christophine's house and Christophine tells Antoinette, she's like, listen, I'm going to give you some advice about men, but the more you love a man, the more he loathes you. If you're not that fussed, the man will be after you day and night. So just like, get rid of this bozo, who cares? But Antoinette's like, I can't leave him legally. He owns all my money and property. And Christine's like, yeah, English law is a real bitch. That really sucks, man. I'm sorry, you never should have married this guy. Antoinette still thinks everything can be saved, especially if she goes to England with her husband. Yeah, England, that bastion of stability. Wouldn't it be great to see a swan and some snow and Chelmsford? This is your <laughs> joke. This is Abby's joke. It's a good one, though. That's not my joke. That's, those are literal things she says in the book. So, if Christine could just work a bit of her folk magic and make Rochester fancy sleeping with Antoinette, she could make him love her. Christine's like... That's quite the Hail Mary. (laughs) Yeah. She's just like, yeah, maybe I could do a spell on him to sleep with you. That would just make him hate you all the more afterwards. So Antoinette reveals to Christophine that Rochester has kind of been sniffing around her past. And he found out that her mother's name is also Antoinette. And and Rochester's a bit like, not on my f***ing watch. Your name is now Bertha. And she's like, listen, I'm just going to reason with him. And I'm going to act as not crazy (laughs) as I possibly can. I'm going to explain very calmly what happened to my mother, her horrible trauma. Rochester's bound to listen to reason, says the most hopeful woman in the world. Yeah, she is mad, isn't she? That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) Um, So we cut back to Rochester. He's got another goading letter from the good Daniel Cosway, noted shit-stirrer. So... This week on Daddy Issues, (laughs) Rochester, he's like, okay, I'm going to go visit this Daniel Cosway dude who may or may not be my wife's illegitimate half-brother. And Daniel Cosway 
instantly launches into his own problems with his father. And Rochester's like, you know what? Bad fathers, that's something I can get on board with. And then Causeway also starts shitting on Christophine, saying she's a liar, and you know what? She's been to jail. And Daniel Causeway confirms that Antoinette and her black cousin Sandy, they might have had a little, little thing going on back in the day. Maybe. They still do. He lives on a different island, though. How are they doing that? No, once you go Sandy, you'll always be Randy. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Daniel Causeway is like, listen, buddy, for the low, low price of 500 pounds... Stop measuring worth. Do you actually have it? No, I didn't do it. Come Daniel! <laughs> Damn it! Another Daniel to disappoint me in this episode. <laughs> Great. He's like, for the low, low price of 500 pounds, I'll keep my mouth shut about everything I know. And Rochester's like, no, this is all getting a little intense for me. I've had sex with this woman. I can't fathom that she could ever be attracted to a black man. Um, And he flees, and Daniel Cosby sort of shouts at him, you'll rue the day. This is the birth of the oversexed legend about Bertha, isn't it? I feel like we needed a Jane Claxon in there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Rochester comes home and Antoinette tries to reason with him and she's like listen I know this guy Daniel Causeway he just he actually hates all white people and he has been peddling this story for years the guy's a racist <laughs> Dan- Daniel I'm not put racist <laughs> so Antoinette manages to hold her together really really well but the second Rochester manages to wring the tiniest bit of emotion out of her he then starts calling her Shrill? She pushes back against being called Bertha, but he's like, you're Bertha from now on, love. She's like, Christophine has told me to leave you. And he's like, "Mm, yeah, yeah, maybe we should separate. And then he thinks, actually, I'm quite attracted to you, and they end up having sex. Did Christophine give him the sex spell? Or Or is he just that guy who's like, well... So Rochester wakes up and he feels really suffocated. He just had sex with his lawfully wedded wife. <laughs> and he's, he has to go away to vomit. I, I did not know sex could be so bad. So she's, she's a freak in the streets and a freak in a bad way in the sheets, apparently. <laughs> and he just has to go puke it out. And then he watches her sleep for a while, which is a normal thing to do. And then he decides, you know what? I loathe this woman, and I'm going to sneak out before she wakes. So he goes back to his own room, which is right next door. And he has Amelie bring him some breakfast chicken (laughs) and some breakfast wine. That starts the day well. As you do. And they start a-giggling, and they start a-rassling, and before you know it sex and this is all despite his wife being asleep in just the next room uh, just a man this is this is really risky you're only separated by a wall it's like you know how like um when you piss through your neighbor's letterbox mm-hmm. you gotta be quick yeah oh yeah yeah uh, i've got i've got my prefab here um rochester has a bit of post-coitum homo racist because he says a few racist things about Amelie after they have sex, doesn't he? Like after, after the fact, he's a bit like, Ooh. Amelie then tells him that she's leaving, that she's going to go hunting for rich husbands in Rio. This makes me like her so much more. Rogers is like, thanks for the tumble, darling. Good luck with that. I wish you well. So that's nice. Christophine has also said that she's going to be leaving, and now the cook says that she's leaving too. Things Everyone's like, this yeah. fucking house. That, We're done. We're the done. The center ain't holding. Yeah. Um, even Antoinette goes out that day by horse and stays away a long time. 
And when she comes back, she barricades herself in a bedroom. Do, do you think, gee, did, did she hear her husband boinking her mortal enemy from one room away? So finally, when Rochester manages to see Antoinette next, he was, quote, too shocked to speak because she looks awful. She's described here kind of in the way she's described in Jane Eyre. Jane! Quote, her hair hung uncombed and dull into her eyes, which were inflamed and staring. Her face was very flushed and looked swollen. Her feet were bare. However, when she spoke, her voice was low, almost inaudible. So she's, she's like a wreck mm. of herself. She's had a really bad day. It comes out that Rochester has fallen out of love with her. Was he ever in love with her? Who knows? He's not in it anyway. And Antoinette, she's rather pissed on the old rum. She bites his arm till it bleeds. Ooh, Jane Eyre reference. Jane! But then she breaks a rum decanter and starts menacing him with the broken end like she's in a sort of Glaswegian barbara. <laughs> Christophine shows up and manages to stop the fight. She's like, why don't you just take Antoinette's money, take Amelie, and why don't the two of you f*** off? All you care about is money. Christophine, she reads him the riot act about how he's, he's been treating Antoinette. We get into a sort of very odd stylistic thing where in parentheses and italics he starts repeating in his head every phrase that Christophine says to him. It's, you know, like a weird echo. It's quite a weird bit. So Christophine also reveals that she's been giving Antoinette some, like, drug to help her sleep. But it's been sort of turning Antoinette into a zombie and she's been having a harder and harder time waking up. So Christophine's like, you know what, I'm just going to start giving her a ton of rum instead. I'm not thrilled by this Judy Garland cocktail. Mm-hmm. Rochester's like, all you've done is turn Antoinette into a wreck of herself. And Christophine's like, fuck you, buddy, you've done that. And they really tear into each other. And Christophine, she's just like, you know what? You better watch your six, white devil. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a good bit, isn't it? Um, also, Christophine goes on a lot of weird tangents about doctors and people called Rupert. So, I don't know, it's kind of like half modernism, half kind of rambly old lady. Also, in the parentheses bits, the kind of Rochester thought stuff, he does a lot of wordplay too, doesn't he? He does that kind of marionette, Antoinette, marionetta, Antoinetta stuff. So there's there's a kind of modernism mm. shining through there, I think. Next, Christophine's like, either love her and treat her well, or get gone. If you're a gentleman, you return half of her diary. But you, you can even keep half of it and go to England. I'll take care of her. We'll go travelling. You know, maybe get get a dog or something. Uh, maybe she'll get married again to someone who appreciates her. Your marriage is over. The, the first wife is just for practice, like the first pancake. Mm, yes. This gives Rochester a pang of jealousy. So maybe he does like her after all. We don't know. We're, we're just like owning things. So he kicks mm. Christophine out and he says, I'll call the police if you don't leave. So Rochester, he's like, okay, uh, look, I'm just going to take my maybe crazy wife that I've just decided it's crazy because... We're going to move to Jamaica. We're going to move off our delightful honeymoon She island. didn't go of her own accord. Say again? She didn't go of her own accord. You know the joke. My wife went to the Caribbean. Jamaica? No, she went of her own accord. Antoinette did not go of her own accord. Next. It was a reach, Daniel. It was, oh, yeah, a-, it was a good joke. <laughs> Should you take a lateral flow test if you don't have any taste <laughs> so rochester is like let's let's move back to jamaica i'm gonna take antoinette maybe listen maybe we need to go see some doctors because she clearly must be crazy because one crazy man who wrote me said she was and he gets really drunk he starts drinking a lot and then he starts doodling a house a big english manor house 
with a woman on the third floor. <gasps> Jane Eyre Claxon. Jane! On the trip to Jamaica, Rochester almost seems to kind of lose it. It's kind of very ambiguous who's speaking, him or Antoinette. We get these kind of cryptic non sequiturs about how much she hates him. He's even really horrible to his servant, Baptiste, who's grown to love Rochester. Oh, oh, queer reading. A thousand percent let's, of queer reading Let's here. just talk about Baptiste's cool outfit, because I really like it. <laughs> Baptiste's cool new look. Baptiste looked very different, not a chase, trace of the polite domestic. He wore a very wide-brimmed straw hat, like the fisherman's hat, but the crown flat, not high and pointed. His wide leather belt was polished, so was the handle of his sheathed cutlass, and his blue cotton shirt and trousers were spotless. That's cool looking at. Baptiste has begged Antoinette to convince Rochester to take him with them, and Rochester's like, no, you're crap at English. Rochester's such an f***ing ass you. You who waited on my every whim, I'm not bringing you to to Jamaica. You know, and Baptiste goes off crying. I was tired of these people. I disliked their laughter and their tears, their flattery and envy, conceit and deceit. And I hated the place. I hated the mountains and the hills, the rivers and the rain. I hated the sunsets of whatever colour. I hated its beauty and its magic and the secret I would never know. I hated its indifference and the cruelty, which is part of its loveliness. Above all, I hated her, for she belonged to the magic and the loveliness. She left me thirsty, and all my life would be thirst and longing for what I had lost before I found it. So... So now we enter part three, and we open on a quotation with Grace Poole. Yeah. If, if you remember her from Jane Eyre, she's charged to take care of Bertha Rochester. So by one revisionist feminist parable, <laughs> get another. <laughs> we got Grace Poole. She's got a voice too now. So she's talking about how she got this job working for Rochester and how he's like, I'll pay double, triple to have somebody take care of my new wife, Bertha, so I just never have to think about her again. And he's kind of gone off to someplace, quote, foreign. So in, in the Jane Eyre timeline, this is the period where I assume he's gone to France and has a love child, Adele, that is the reason Jane ends up coming to Thornfield Hall in the first place. We go back to Antoinette's narration. Now she's imprisoned in England. So she's been planning on begging Rochester for her freedom in exchange for never seeing him again. But she hasn't been able to ask. She hasn't seen Rochester since they arrived in England, in the dark and cold of England. Uh, wait, I'm, I'm sorry, is her husband a deadbeat dad? Yeah, looks like it. <laughs> She's also become morbidly fascinated by fire. Oh, good, good combo. Yeah. She's also tried some gin from Grace Poole's flask once Grace drank herself to sleep. So, you know, she used to drink rum like it was water, but just one slug of glug of slug of gin is enough to knock her out well daniel you can't just knock back straight gin i mean it's it's not rum it's not a breakfast liquor exactly yeah antoinette also she starts casually stealing grace's keys and she wanders around the house at this time um and she's really confused about where she is and she's like this this can't possibly be the beautiful england i was dreaming of this i'm not in england she thinks the uh, the ship must have taken them to some other country across this wide Sargasso Sea. So mm. she's like, listen, control F, but for England, I know it must be around here somewhere. And then one morning, Antoinette wakes up with all these red marks on her wrist. And she's like, I don't remember what happened. Mm. And apparently, like years have passed and we're now in the Jane Eyre timeline, and this is the night that she stabbed and bit her stepbrother Richard, and she's completely blacked this out. Ooh. 
So she hallucinates her cousin Sandy coming to see her one last time. Tell me about it, stud. She and Sandy then have a passionate dream kiss and she says, quote, Now there was no time left, so we kissed each other in that stupid room. We had often kissed before, but not like that. That was the life and death kiss. So what's going on with Sandy? Was there something romantic? Why don't we see any of that? Yeah. I mean, he's hardly in it at all, isn't he? Do Do you know why I like this book? Go on. They really get the incest right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that's not my joke. That's not my joke. That's a community joke. Right. Then she has a, quote, dream again. And this is the scene where she burns down Thornfield after Jane has left. So we don't get... I I think this is really interesting. We don't get any of the more famous Mm. scenes from Jane Eyre. Jane is really absent from this retelling. We don't get her tearing Jane's wedding veil or the scene when Jane and Rochester visit after their sort of abortive wedding. And Antoinette has this complete out-of-body experience where she steals Grace's keys she grabs a candle, and she hears laughter and screaming, and she worries it's, quote, the ghost of the woman who haunts this place. Bit uh, dissociation. Yeah, it, yeah, this is really fascinating. So she sees herself in a mirror, and in sort of shock and recognition, she drops the candle she's holding, and some drapes go, go up in flame. And she calls on the spirit of Christophine to help her. She goes upstairs toward the roof, and she hallucinates things from her Caribbean home along the way. I'm just like, hurry up. If you're going to kill Rochester, just, like, do it before he dies of old age. Arson (laughs) murder his ass. Uh, So she hallucinates her mother's parrot. This is their big goodbye, isn't it? Uh, uh, Who says in French, who's there? Qui est là? She thinks she hears the man who hates her screaming Bertha. She also thinks she hears her friend Tia. She screams Tia and jumps. Ooh. And then, meanwhile, still today... Uh, yeah, then she wakes up in her room with Grace Poole, who also heard the scream and wonders what it was. Grace Poole checks out the noise, can't figure it out, falls into another drunken stupor. Antoinette takes the keys and says, quote, I was outside holding my candle. Now at last I know why I was brought here and what I had to do. There must have been a draft for the flame flickered and I thought it was out, but I shielded it with my hand and it burned up again to light me along the dark passage. So in short, she's hit rock bottom and has decided to just keep drilling. Yeah, do the old, uh, you know, Samson. (laughs) Happy ending. But I, I like that she always has to get by Grace Poole, like Grace Poole is a mini boss blocking the final boss, but all you have to do is just wait six and a half minutes and she'll fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, that's what Who else in our reading list could do with a prequel in, from back at the back catalogue? I thought, I'm just going to say mine, Grendel's Mother. It's a bit of an obvious choice, but I thought Grendel's Mother could do with a book. Tichiba. She's not really a villain, is she? But she's kind of, it would be interesting to know about her. A bit depressing, probably. She was a real woman as well, wasn't she? Tichiba from, uh, what's it called? The the Crucible. The Crucible. And, of course, I mean, this, I've already written this, but Catherine de Bourgh. Um, <laughs> I was sort of thinking, actually, Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. That would ooh, explain a lot of her. Good. Obviously, I'm always going to go for Gulliver's Wife and Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> yes, yeah, that would be really good, yeah. Would you like... Are you sure... You want some casting? Yes, please. Because I've really, really gone off the rails with this one. Okay. The issue is, there have been a million adaptations of Jane Eyre. 
There have been so many other similar stories about a woman imprisoned by a marriage in the 19th century, and I'm just, I, it's just, it's been done to gritty death, and I'm kind, I'm kind of sick of it. Okay. So. Sci-fi. Uh, I think you're not gonna like this. I want this set in the present day, and I want it done <laughs> in the style of Fleabag. Oh yeah. I think even the overt commentary on imperialism could really, really work in this style because if if you think about things like Broad City, they do a lot comedically with sort of white women very imperfectly facing their privilege, mm. and I just I just think there could be a lot there to sort of unpack if we do it from a comedy angle. I'm not opposed to this. You hate this idea. No, I don't. Okay. Yes, you do. All right. Poor <laughs> well, Antoinette, I'm being told what to. I think. What to think. <laughs> Right, and now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. Mr. Rochester will never be anywhere in the same league as Mr. Darcy. One star. Why are you comparing these two men? First of all, Austen was writing way before the Brontes. Secondly, this book isn't even a Bronte book. This is a rewriting of an especially dirtbag Rochester. Friend, you're killing me. Okay. No idea how this could possibly be considered a literary masterpiece. Some of the text doesn't even make sense. Mm -hmm. One star. Yes, that's because you've discovered modernism. And then the best one is, the term literature masterpiece has been used to describe this book. Well, it's 130 pages, so I think it's a novella at best. So first error there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One star. So apparently size does matter. All right, that's it. As per, we had kind of quite different styles of reading. Mine was very sort of perfunctory and like feminism, post-colonialism, and yours was more quite granular. So I don't know if we should start with the granular readings or the general readings. We can do whatever you like, friend. Yeah, let's talk about the title first, because you were asking about the Sargasso Sea. So why is it called that? Why is it called the White Sargasso Sea? It's the bit around the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, so I thought this was really interesting because the Sargasso Sea, it's not only around the Bermuda Triangle, which is like a place of loss and confusion and suspicion and all that stuff, but it's the only sea in the world, as far as I'm aware, that has absolutely no land boundary. So it's a sea surrounded by other seas and oceans and things like that. Mm. There's n- nothing to orient you, and I think that really reflects... Yeah, that kind of de-resonated feeling. Yeah. Well, the, 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 yeah, this is the thing that I know, knew about it, that it's full of seaweed. It's simultaneously this incredibly beautiful blue, clear water, but then there are patches of it that are really, really covered in seaweed. So there's that, like, is this incredibly clear, or is it mm. incredibly, like, obfuscated and mysterious? What's that sense of, like very vivid colour but then also overgrowth um I was thinking it's also just the the bit in between the Caribbean and Europe isn't it in broad terms well yeah that's, that's pretty lazy reading on my no, part no no but, but that's, that's an important reading yeah. of like literally it's between the Caribbean and England isn't yeah. it it's how you get there it's, yeah. it's the one thing it's to the other it's about the breadth between their two cultures uh yeah so this is also probably not what reese intended in the 1960s but also keep in mind that the sargasso sea is the area that has the north atlantic garbage patch and i kind of thought well doesn't rochester belong there perfectly (laughs) yeah he is that isn't he yeah but also the the idea that the the sargasso sea is considered a very like calm bit of sea which you think is a safe thing but in terms of shipping a calm sea is very very dangerous yeah the doldrums yeah that's how you get stuck Mm. so the idea of like oh stability is good you know what i'm used to is 
good, but it's actually, no, you get stuck there and you're going to die there. Yeah. Jane Eyre, as a kind of prequel then, you know, uh, where there's a lot of, like, deliberate allusions to it, aren't there? Is this fan fiction? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Like, and, and can this stand on its own? And I, I gotta be honest, I don't think this can stand on its own. I think it's a very, very good novel, but I think it's also, it's built on too much of the structure of Jane Eyre, where I don't think this... It doesn't have the same resonance if it's not deconstructing something. So I think it is fan fiction. I think it can. It's so enriched by Jane Eyre. It's so pointing a finger at European literature, yeah. Western cultural oh, yeah, literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, well, that's the but that, that that's a, that's a weird thing. It needs it to undo it. But that's the it contradiction of all this stuff, isn't it? That this is a world that has been produced by the Metropole in part, but it's also by as. Rochester and Antoinette found out it's very different and very autonomous mm-hmm. from the metropole in its own, it gains, even just culturally. It gains its own life yeah. as it goes on. Yeah, and yeah that's, that's cool. That's you don't you don't need to know about Europe to know about the Caribbean, and you don't need to know about Jane Eyre to know about where to go to see. But no doubt there are aspects of Caribbean culture that would be you you would have a certain appraisal of if you knew about European culture, for example. Yeah, you know, I feel like that's. That's but but that's the case with all culture, isn't it? No doubt, you know, you and I would be much better literary scholars if we both could read Latin. But I mean, I can't. It's the same sort of thing, though, isn't it? I just thought that though, because so much of this book just in itself is about what you're describing, isn't it? There's so much stuff about not just like mental illness and different way like categories of thought, which obviously informs the style of writing, but also there's a lot about myth and different kind of cultural vernaculars. You know, like ideas of flamboyance and colours and stuff. You know, like there's there's a kind of stylistic folkloric psychological and textual variety that runs throughout the text that i think confirms what you're saying about this spirit of variety or whatever or uh, confusion let's, so let's briefly discuss post-colonialism i just think there's this cool bit in where christophine says england you think there's such a place so christophine sort of upends colonial relationships but she also kind of reinforced them so she's she's also tom tom stoppard and going england it's just a, a conspiracy of cartographers exactly yeah what's that it's from rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead there you go yeah. doesn't this book precede that yes yeah yeah okay. by a but long yeah, it is like that she's but i suppose here we've got this whole caribbean thing that she's kind of denying the metropole so there's that kind of additional post-colonial component maybe i don't know rather than a kind of whimsical thought mm. experiment i don't know there's a lot of stuff like about the profundity of our blackness so there's a kind of reverse pigmentocracy thing going mm. on there isn't there should we briefly talk about feminism in conjunction with jane Eyre? so how does wide sagacity see commentate upon continue or critique the ideas of gender that are explored in jane Eyre? Well, these are both very clearly feminist novels, but um, it, it's interesting that Antoinette is sort of forced into a very passive role, yeah. and Jane is the very passionate, angry woman. She, She's she, a ball buster. An <laughs> orchidoclast, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> as uh, <laughs> uh, well. Yeah, I was just thinking like, in terms of periodization, though, like, so, because Jane Eyre, as you say, is this kind of like. Jane Eyre's incredibly radical for yeah. the time it's in, where Jane is so angry. You don't get that in the 1840s but that she's much. All, it's a kind of about... It's a sort of... I don't want to be too harsh on it, because I do like it, but back to fanfic, it's almost like a Mary Sue thing, isn't it? That she kind of... Imagine if there was a woman that could just somehow like rise to power and become queen of the castle. That would be great, wouldn't it? And in itself, that's a radical thing to do. But this is telling a very different story, isn't it? It's saying, like, no... It really that would have been very hard to do and a man would have exerted that kind of power like would have exerted power over a woman in a way that would have prevented her from doing that and 
we've got two kinds of narratives here one about somebody just rising to power and that's framed as like a kind of a triumph one about somebody who's completely stymied and that's framed as like a kind of historical inevitability or maybe not inevitability but like a kind of she's casualty of the patriarchy whereas Jane is a kind of overcomer of the patriarchy and I wonder if those reflect different historical moments the 1840s and the 1960s they might I mean can I ask you the question of which do you prefer which text uh, this one's a lot shorter <laughs> I like both but I do obviously I do have a Victorian leaning uh, a bit of advice one of the things you should always pay attention to if people talk a lot about flowers or plant life you might think that's really inconsequential but actually especially in the victorian era there there's a whole language of flowers and plants that used to mean something so if you like sent this flower to your beloved that would communicate some sort of secret message and people in the victorian period would like absolutely integrate that into their storytelling mm. and that has carried on over the years so just like if somebody talks about flowers or plant life just look up what the meaning orchids balls i've said it already <laughs> it's back all right and our clue to the next episode now you know how we do on this show we're always doing queer readings we're always encouraging characters to come out of the closet but this time we're going to be going into a closet well, maybe not exactly a closet. Please tweet us at smfms underscore podcast or write to us at save me from myself shelf not self. That's the joke at <laughs> gmail.com. You know, just you know, do all that. Rate, review, subscribe. Right. So, all right. Thank you, guys. We will see you next time for our Christmas special, and uh, have a good couple of weeks. Peace out. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you. <laughs>